Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria coming to you live from New York. On today's program, the U.S. and Britain strike the Houthis in Yemen, and the strife between Hezbollah and Israel heats up. Is this turning into a war between Iran and its proxies on the one hand, and the West? We'll tell you all you need to know. Then, China's eagle eyes were watching across the strait as Taiwan voted yesterday. What did they see? Will the results bring us closer to conflict or further away? I'll ask an expert. Also, escaping from North Korea is an incredibly dangerous prospect. Would-be defectors are likely to be tortured or killed if caught. We will bring you an extraordinary inside look at the journey out of the Hermit Kingdom with the people behind the new film, Beyond Utopia. But first, here's my take. It's now almost three months since Benjamin Netanyahu's government's ground invasion of Gaza began. And it is time to ask some hard questions. Has it been proportional to the damage that Hamas inflicted on Israel? Has the Israeli government been careful to avoid civilian casualties? Was there another path? I ask this as a supporter of Israel, a country that I believe has been a remarkable success in an environment that was for decades deeply hostile to it and where some countries like Iran remain opposed to its very existence. I'm also dismayed and appalled by the rise of anti-Semitism across the world, which is a powerful reminder as to why Israel was founded in the first place. This week, hearings in the International Court of Justice began to determine if Israel's government is committing genocide against the Palestinians in Gaza. I think the charge is invalid. There is no systematic effort to exterminate Gaza's population. If there were, given the vast disparity in power, Israel would surely have killed many more than 23,000 people, though, of course, that number is still staggeringly high. The death toll, I should note, comes from the Hamas-run health ministry in Gaza. Genocide is an incendiary accusation that should not be used loosely. Nevertheless, some deeply troubling facts may emerge about Israel's bombing campaign. Israel suffered a brutal terrorist attack on October 7th and had the right to respond forcefully. But consider what it has done in a small territory housing 2.2 million people, half of whom are children, and of which, by Israel's own estimate before the war, only 30,000 are Hamas fighters. A Wall Street Journal analysis of Israel's bombing campaign notes that by mid-December, nearly 70% of Gaza's 439,000 homes and about half of all its buildings have been damaged or destroyed. Much of the water, electrical communications, and healthcare infrastructure that made Gaza function is beyond repair. Of Gaza's 36 hospitals, only eight can still accept patients. 
UN monitors report that more than two-thirds of all schools have been damaged, as have several churches and over a hundred mosques. The Associated Press reports that, according to experts, in roughly two months, Israel caused more destruction in Gaza than the Battle of Aleppo in Syria or the raising of Mariupol in Ukraine, and killed more civilians than the U.S. and its allies did in a three-year campaign against ISIS. Israel's campaign has exceeded proportionally the destruction of the Allied bombings of Germany in World War II. And as the University of Chicago's Robert Pape notes, is one of the most intense civilian punishment campaigns in history. CNN reported in mid-December that U.S. intelligence estimated that 40 to 45 percent of the 29,000 bombs Israel had dropped were unguided, prone to cause greater collateral damage. Prime Minister Netanyahu has evoked the biblical story of Amalek, in which God tells the Israelites to kill every man, woman, and child, destroy all property, even kill every animal in retaliation for a surprise attack. The Committee to Protect Journalists reports that more journalists have been killed in the first 10 weeks of the Israel-Gaza war than have ever been killed in a single country over an entire year. The United Nations reports that more UN aid workers have been killed in Gaza than in any other conflict over the 78 years of the organization. It's possible that some of these numbers are misleading, but are all of them coming from various sources wrong? This military campaign is being perpetrated by a deeply unpopular government in Jerusalem that is trying to salvage its reputation. Polls since the start of this conflict have shown that most of the Israeli public has lost faith in Prime Minister Netanyahu. A poll that came out last week found that only 15 percent of those surveyed wanted Bibi Netanyahu to keep his job after the war. 69 percent wanted elections as soon as the war ends. It is awkward to note this, but Prime Minister Netanyahu has every incentive to keep the military campaign going in the hope that his day of reckoning can be postponed if not put off indefinitely. Having bungled the strategy toward Hamas before the war, he is trying to use maximum force now as political compensation. Israel is a democracy and an open society, and precisely because of that, it will one day have to ask itself whether it acted appropriately in the heat of its anger and sorrow after October 7th. Friends of Israel should help it ask those questions now so that it does not look back on this episode with shame and regret. Go to CNN.com slash Fareed for a link to my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. Sunday marks 100 days since Hamas's terrible attacks of October 7th. And today, the wider war in the Middle East that many feared may be upon us. On Thursday, the United States and the United Kingdom conducted strikes against the Houthis, the Iran-backed Yemeni rebel group that has repeatedly attacked commercial vessels in the Red Sea in recent weeks, disrupting commerce. And it's not just the Houthis. Conflict between Israel and another Iran-backed group, Hezbollah, is heating up in Lebanon. Joining me now is Fawaz Gerges, Professor of International Relations at the London School of Economics. 
Fawaz, welcome. It's so good to have you here as a deep scholar of this, uh, this area. Let me start with the most uh, urgent issue, which is these American and British attacks on the Houthis. Uh, it feels like the United States is getting drawn into a conflict that is going to be very difficult to declare victory over. The Houthis have withstood 10 years of Saudi airstrikes, bombardment, war, and what they are doing is launching, you know, cheap drones that are causing all this damage. Is there a possibility that these American and, and British strikes will work? Probably 10% uh, out of 100. Uh, I think the big question, Farid, is that the Biden administration is getting sucked into the shifting sands of the Middle East with really uh, eyes wide open. And we have been there before. But let's, let's unpack Biden's position for a minute. From day one, after Hamas' bloody attacks on Israel on the 7th of October, the key objective of the Biden administration has been to prevent the escalation, the spread of the conflict from Gaza. What does it mean? It means giving Israel time and space to accomplish its mission while preventing and deterring any group or nation from really lending help to the Palestinians. This strategy has failed. The war in Gaza has spread near and wide. It's escalating. And it's escalating that my, my fear is that the longer the war uh, goes on in Gaza, the greater risk of a region-wide conflict. And the Biden administration is partly responsible for this because it has really the key to resolve this particular crisis by agreeing to a humanitarian ceasefire, which most of the world have been calling for uh, in the past uh, three months or so. So let me ask you about the, the other piece of it that you mentioned, which is Hezbollah. What, what is likely to happen when, when the conflict started, Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah, made a kind of remarkable statement where he seemed to say, I wish you well to Hamas, we did not know about this in advance, um, but we're not taking, we're not joining in. So there was a caution, there was a pragmatism. Uh, do you think Hezbollah could get draw, more drawn in? Because it does seem like things are changing. You know, Farid, uh, you're talking about the leader of Hezbollah, Hassan Nasrallah. He has made it very clear in multiple speeches that he does not really want all-out war with Israel. He has made it very clear that there is no really, uh, uh, I mean, uh, uh, centralized command for the various resistance groups in the region. He made it, he said very clearly, look, we support each other, we coordinate with each other, but there's really no uh, central command and control. Uh, each one of us, he says, quote, unquote, basically acts according to their own national interest. And in fact, the United States itself has made it very clear that Hezbollah has been acting with restraints. Hezbollah has not targeting, targeted Israel's population centers. But if you look at what's happening in the past few weeks, it's really Israel that has been pushing Hezbollah to the limits. It's provoking Hezbollah. It has been killing its, I mean, top commanders in the field. It had attacked Hezbollah in the very heart of its social base in Beirut and the south. It has killed scores of Hezbollah members in Syria, more in the past three months, 19 Hezbollah uh, fighters, than in the past, uh, uh, 20, uh, uh, the, the past year. 
Um, and the United States is terrified, is terrified and has really trying to basically pressure Israel not to uh, provoke uh, Hezbollah. Israel also, uh, Farid, and the Defense Department, the U.S. Defense Department, has been furious. It targeted the Lebanese army 34 times in the past three months. And if you ask me what's happening here, and, and I, I probably I might come across as, as too cynical, but I think uh, Netanyahu's political future depends on the continuation of the war in Gaza and probably its, its expansion. Because when the, the guns fall silent in Gaza, he knows that there will be reckoning, public reckoning, public reckoning for his strategic failure on the 7th of October and for his failure to deliver on his promises. I mean, let's take stock of the well, last let me just, 100 let days. Me, let me just ask you, Fawaz, before we go, though, I want to ask you about this one other piece of news, which is the Saudis reaffirmed that they wanted to normalize relations with Israel. That strikes me as unusual, given everything that's going on. What do you think? What do you read into that? Are they do they they not, really don't care about the Palestinian issue? How would you read it? Well, the, the, the other part which you did not mention is that they will not they will normalize only when Israel accepts to basically allow the Palestinians self-determination and a state of their own. But look, at the end of the day, top-down normalization with Arab autocrats will not give Israel security. The only security that Israel can have is genuine reconciliation with the Palestinians. Very genuine reconciliation with the Palestinians means ending Israel's military occupation. It means allowing Palestinian self-determination. It means being a good citizen, its neighborhood, and being at peace with itself. This is the only way that Israel can really live in peace in the region, not with this fake normalization with Arab autocrats that really will never deliver genuine real security for Israel. Fawaz Gerges, always a pleasure to have you on. Thank you, sir. Next Thank on GPS, from the conflict in the Middle East to concerns about a future conflict in Asia. Did yesterday's election in Taiwan put the self-governing island on a path toward ever greater problems with mainland China? When we come back. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff, and some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Yesterday's election in Taiwan might push the self-governing island closer to conflict with China. At least that is the fear. Taiwanese voters chose Lai Ching-te as their new president. Lai is the current vice president and a member of the ruling Democratic Progressive Party, 
which wants closer ties with Washington and other democracies. He won against two rivals who both in various ways favored a warmer relationship with Beijing. In response to the election, a Chinese government spokesman said the basic fact that Taiwan is a part of China will not change. Joining me now is Bonnie Lin, the director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Uh, Bonnie, welcome. Give us a sense of Lai Ching-te. Who, who is this guy who's just become president? Thank you, Fareed. It's great to join you. Uh, so Lai has been uh, in, <clears throat> in Taiwan politics for quite some time. Uh, he has currently serves as the vice president of Taiwan, but he's also held other national positions, including a premier of Taiwan. He's also had positions at the local level. So in many ways, he is very much a seasoned politician, as well as a supporter of Tsai Ing-wen for some time. One thing we do uh, know is that, and part of what you alluded to, is that prior to um, his some of the recent years, he has taken positions that China views as very much pro-independence. And from the Chinese perspective, they view Lai as a diehard pro-independence worker. And that does raise some of the potential for tensions if China were to operate on this very um, uh, ill-conceived notion of lie. So what I'm struck by is help us understand the politics of Taiwan. Uh, I think there's a general impression that everybody in Taiwan wants independence. But when you look at the polling, that's not the case. Um, most people in Taiwan just want the status quo. They're, they're not independent, but they're, they are basically in de facto independent. And if you look at this poll, he wins 40% of the vote. And the other two candidates together take 60%. Does that tell you that there's sort of a majority of Taiwan is uncomfortable with this, this more assertive, anti-Beijing, pro-Washington po uh, position? I think you raise a really good point. So if we look at polling, we actually don't see most in Taiwan advocating for independence. Most want to maintain the status quo, exactly like you mentioned. And if you look at the polling results, um, as you mentioned, Lai did not receive more than 50% of the votes at the presidential, for the presidential election, which is different from Tsai, where both in the 2016 and 2020 elections, she, she received more than 50% of the votes. And it's also important to note that not only did Lai not receive 50% of the votes uh, for the presidential elections, when you look at Taiwan's legislative UN elections, their equivalent of Congress, the DPP did not hold on to their majority. So one way to look at this is, and this is how China looks at it, is that um, Lai does not have the popular vote in Taiwan, and nor does his party have control of Congress. Hopefully, if China has that perspective, it will put some moderation in terms of how China views Lai, as well as Lai's ability to influence Taiwan's cross-strait policies. Now, for the Chinese, as important as what Taiwan does is what Washington does. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm wondering, if you step back from all of this, where do you think U.S.-China relations are? Because that's, in a way, going to determine whether this particular hotspot uh, explodes. Uh, it started off badly with the Anchorage summit and such, seems to have gotten better since the last Biden-Xi summit. Uh, is that, has there been genuine progress on building a kind of working relationship, or was that just show and no substance? Uh, so if you look at U.S.-China relations, exactly like you mentioned, Fareed, it's probably a more important factor for how China thinks about Taiwan than just what's happening domestically within Taiwan. 
in the last couple of months, particularly since the Biden-Xi meeting uh, outside of San Francisco, we've seen U.S.-China relations stabilize uh, to some extent. I would still say competition still defines U.S.-China relations, but it is interesting to watch what has happened in the last week in U.S.-China relations. Almost every single day of the past week leading up to the Taiwan elections, we've seen some form of critical U.S.-China engagement. Monday and Tuesday, we saw military-to-military talks between U.S. and Chinese militaries. On Wednesday and Friday, we saw uh, Minister Liu Jianchao of, from China's um, International Liaison Department of the Chinese Communist Party engage with, with Principal Deputy National Security Advisor Feiner, as well as meet with Secretary Blinken. We saw on Thursday a call between Secretary Raimondo and her Chinese counterparts. So we have a good op-tempo of critical engagements between U.S. and China leaning up to the elections. And I think that provides some, uh, some counterweight to however China may perceive the election results. Okay, we've got only about 30 or 40 seconds left, so I ask you to make this short. Jim Steinberg and Steve Hadley, two very senior, very seasoned officials, are going to, Bay, uh, to Taipei uh, to meet the new president. What do you think the message that Joe Biden is sending through these people is going to be? I think one critical message is that the United States supports a democra the democratically elected president of Taiwan, and we hope to maintain U.S. policy towards Taiwan. It will be consistent regardless of who is the president. And I believe both of those uh, former leaders will be meeting not only with uh, Lai and the DPP, but also those of other parties, including the KMT, as well as TPP within Taiwan. Uh, and those are the, the two other parties that fielded presidential candidates. Bonnie Lynn, that was a wonderful primer for us on that election. Thank you. Thank you. N next on GPS, we have something really special, an eye-opening new documentary. It's a real-life thriller about people trying to escape from what I call the worst country in the world, North Korea. You don't want to miss this. Academy Award nominations will be released later this month, and on the shortlist for Best Documentary is a film called Beyond Utopia. It tells a powerful story about people trying to defect from North Korea, with danger lurking around every corner, but also a sprawling network of people risking their own lives to help. The filmmakers got extraordinary up-close footage of one family's harrowing journey. To talk about that story and what it tells us about North Korea, I spoke to the film's director, Madeline Gavin, and one of the film's producers, former CIA analyst, Sumi Terry. Welcome, both of you. Um, Sumi Terry, let me start with you. Uh, you know, when I was uh, at Newsweek, we once did a kind of uh, the worst countries in the world a list, and we talked to experts and correspondents and and we decided the North Korea ranked number one. I think the Taliban Afghanistan ranked number two because they were evil, but they were not that competent. North Korea has this combination of pure evil with extraordinary brutal competence. So given that backdrop, which I'm guessing you agree with, explain what the stakes are for somebody who's trying to escape from North Korea. Um, what happens? How, you know, how difficult is it? Well, it's a life and death situation. As you said, North Korea is a failed state, but they are very competent about their security apparatus, their fear tactics, their ability to control the population. So it's, it's literally you're risking your life to flee North Korea. And 
Of course, you can't. The easiest thing to do geographically would be to go to South Korea, but that is a heavily armed, mined border. What's the path out? You know, it's it's pretty complicated. It's complicated. You do have to cross the river and go to the China-North Korea border and cross uh, the river and go through the mountain and all of that to flee North Korea. As you said, you can go cross the DMZ, and there were instances in the past, and you might remember a few years ago, a North Korean soldier dramatically tried to escape, got shot in the back. But as you mentioned, it's heavily fortified soldiers, landmines. So that's really very risky. So the real way to escape is really just the border, you know, go through the border. But when you get to north to China, you're not free, as I discovered in the movie, because if the Chinese catch you, they just send you back to North Korea. I think that's one of the most important things about this film. Uh, You realize, you think that most people might think, okay, fleeing North Korea is the hardest part. No, that's just the first step. And the real danger begins when you're in China. And that's because China's policy is to not recognize them as refugees. They call them economic migrants. And they have this longstanding policy of repatriating them, forcibly repatriating them back to North Korea, knowing exactly what fate awaits them. But it's not even just China. So then you get past China, you've got to go into Laos, Laos. Vietnam. They all have the same policies. Their policy is also to send the North Koreans back. So it's a very treacherous journey until they make it to Thailand. Um, and then of course so you've got to cross through three countries usually before you get to freedom. It's a long track. So Madeline, to me, the most extraordinary thing is you are watching this family escape from North Korea in the most dangerous circumstances. And, and we're seeing it all. Um, you, you couldn't have had cameramen. It feels like it's all being shot on iPhones. How did you, how did you manage that? Yeah, I mean, I, I have to give so much credit to Pastor Kim, a South Korean pastor who we, we you know, follow in the film. He is the reason we were able to shoot in places where nobody goes, nobody wants to go. You know, the border of North Korea and China, it's a more than 800-mile river border. And the Underground Railroad and Pastor Kim's network keeps flip phones and cameras hidden along that border. And that is how we were able to do this. How many people who helped this one family get, get, get out? So in this one escape that we followed, there were more than 50 people from the Underground Railroad involved in that escape. Describe the, the, the journey, because we see some of it, and it feels like I mean, they're going through forests, they're going through jungles, they're, they're, and they just have to keep moving. The, the, the little kid gets hurt. The, the, the mother just says, you've got to keep moving. Yeah. Yeah, so... The journey begins in China, which is a huge country. In this particular case, they went through China um, into Vietnam and then into Laos and then over the Mekong River into Thailand. And um, yeah, we had different, every single thing, you know, had to be vetted in such a delicate fashion. There were, in China, none of us were in China, obviously. Um, That was only the Underground Railroad shooting and one family member of the Roe family who we follow. Um, We were able to be in Southeast Asia, but there were areas where someone could be, but not someone else. This camera could be used, not that camera. It was- How um, did they trust you as an American? The grandma says, (laughs) I was suspicious of these Americans, but how did you work on it? You know, for grandma, you could feel the sort of dialectic inside her. 
um, you know, on the one hand, every time she looked at me, she would kind of tear up. And there was this kind of, you know, she was grappling with what she has known to be true her whole life in North Korea, which is that we are her enemy, and what she was experiencing in the moment, in the present. And it was this unfolding that was extraordinary. When we come back, we'll find out what happened to the Roe family. Did they make it to freedom? Stay with us. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. More now with Madeline Gavin and Sumi Terry discussing their film, Beyond Utopia, about North Korean defectors. So, Madeline, we're going to, unfortunately, do a bit of a spoiler alert, but the Roe family does make it. There's this extraordinary moment. The last stage of it is crossing over to Thailand, crossing the Mekong River. And it, that it is also very fraught. And the pastor says something which I, I thought was so good. He said, until now, you, you have been running away from the police. Now I want you to run to the police. I want the Thai police to arrest you because they will send you to South Korea, not North Korea. That must have been, I mean, just an amazing moment to capture on camera. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and for the Roe family, who, you know, because growing up in North Korea, you learn essentially nothing about the outside world. So, you know, like you said, they were running from the police, hiding from the police in China, in Vietnam, in Laos. And then even to be told that is such a, you know, even to grapple with that and, 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 and run toward the police, as you say. Um, yeah, it was, it was an extraordinary moment. And then, you know, to, to see them when they get to Thailand and they actually are safe. You know, to me, the, 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 watching the grandma kind of get unbrainwashed is fascinating, right? Because she begins, uh, in, when, when they talk to her, uh, and she starts saying, you know, I don't understand why uh, Kim Jong-un doesn't do a better job. He's badly advised. And then, and then his daughter says, <laughs> the daughter says to, the, to her mother, you don't have to lie anymore. But she's not lying. She's slowly getting unbrainwashed. And then she says to you, what I don't understand is I was always told Americans are monsters, but you are so nice. That must have felt good. It was amazing. But she also, then she goes on to say, but sometimes I think, well, maybe they're pretending to yes. be nice and they're actually going to kill us because we're North Korean. So it was this real back and forth, you know, in her own mind. And that was so fascinating to watch. Well, I talk a lot about ideological indoctrination that goes on in North Korea. But that scene when the grandmother just says, she, she, she's in Vietnam and she's how, she sees how prosperous it is. And she said, but this cannot be our dear leader's fault. This must be our fault. Right. So that kind of, that just says volumes, that speaks yeah. volumes yeah. about the ideological indoctrination that she went through her whole life. Yeah. I thought that was a very revealing moment. 
How do you how do they maintain in North Korea that level of indoctrination, that level of repression? It does feel unreal. Well, it is the most closed off society in the world. I think they have perfected totalitarian control more than any state in the world. This is how the regime survives more more than 75 years now. This is how it survives through monopoly on information by isolating its population from the rest of the world ideological indoctrination, the security services, the fuel tactics. You know, south of the border, there's South Korea, right? That's 10th largest economy in the world with all the increasing soft power. How does the North Korean regime survive? They have to have this unparalleled control of of its population. Give us an update. Um, Since we have you, you were the lead CIA analyst on on North Korea. What... um, What's going on? Is there anything new that you know, we're worried about Gaza and Iran and uh, Russia? We forget this, this nuclear-armed, rogue, failed state. Yeah, I think there's a continuing danger because geopolitical environment is actually favorable for North Korea. The whole world is distracted. Meanwhile, they are diversifying, expanding, modernizing, perfecting their arsenal. They just had a successful satellite launch after two failed attempts. Only two months after Kim meeting with Putin, there is a new burgeoning relationship, closeness between Russia and North Korea. North Korea just sent artilleries and rockets uh, that Russia used in Ukraine cities. So there's a lot going on. And of course, in the humanitarian situation, it's not getting any better. Kim Jong-un regime is cracking down on its public, uh, the population, because he's very worried about information coming into North Korea. So situation is worsening. But the world is, you know, where, because there's so much going on. And UNSC, United Nations Security Council, completely paralyzed. China and Russia working with North Korea. There is a lot of heartbreak in this, in this movie. There's another family. And one of the characters in the movie says, in the, in the film says, um, we were just born in the wrong country. That seemed to me the most heartbreaking moment. Yeah. That was so important to me to put in the film. Um, and also something that Hyansioli, another person in the film, says, which is, you know, she said, people always say, you know, oh, why, do, why, why don't the North Korean people revolt? Why don't they just stand up to their leader? And she says, you know, I believe that everyone else would be exactly like us if they were brought up where we were brought up because we didn't know what existed outside. We lived in, in a virtual prison. And so it's like those two things, I mean, Born in the wrong country, it's the luck of the draw that we were not born there. And that's why I wanted to make this film, because, you know, 26 million people who we have not really acknowledged in our media for more than 70 years, they were born in the wrong country. And that line was so important to me. It's heartbreaking. Well, you've made an extraordinary movie, both of you. You should be very proud. Thank you. Thank you for sharing it with us. The film is Beyond Utopia. It's available to watch on PBS and other streaming services. Next on GPS, as everyone is worried about Ukraine's prospects, we bring you an inspiring story about Ukraine's attempt to turn its democracy digital and strengthen its liberal democratic credentials. That story when we come back. When I was in Ukraine, I had the opportunity to sit down with Mikhailo Fedorov, the Deputy Prime Minister for Innovation, Education, Science and Technology. Fedorov is the man behind Ukraine's drone fleet, 
and we aired an interview about that. But Fedorov also serves as Minister for Digital Transformation and what a transformation it is. In this war-ravaged country, the citizens can now pay taxes, receive benefits, get a driver's license and more, all via an app. As it fights for its own survival, Ukraine is showing the world how to make government tech-savvy and nimble. I talked to Fedorov about these efforts, and I wanted to bring you that conversation now. I'm amazed when I have been dealing with Ukrainians and talking to them. Everybody has these digital apps. They have their passport on there. They have their driving license on there. They have a national ID. They have the equivalent of our social security card on there. But there are many, many more apps. Like, is this now, is it a kind of digital first strategy where the primary uh, documentation is now all digital? Yes, we have special laws. We have become the first country in the world to adopt laws making electronic passports comparable to physical passports. We even have an option to get electronic driver's licenses without getting plastic licenses. This is our country's strategy and we are implementing it actively. And today our core app DIA is used by more than 70% of all Ukrainians. It is very popular. And all the services are launched first online and then offline. So this is our strategy, launching digital first. And with this app, Dia, what can what can an average Ukrainian do on that app that I you know that we would not think you could do digitally? Your electronic passport is there. You can get any kind of services using this passport. You can pay taxes, you can receive fines for parking illegally or traffic violations. You can donate to the armed forces. You can get any certificate you may need to submit to government agencies. And during the full-scale war, you can also get social security payments and benefits if you live, for example, in the area of hostilities. The government understands that and makes targeted payments. And if you are in the occupied territory, you can even use DIA to provide information about the movement of enemy equipment and inform the armed forces about the enemy's location. And more than 500,000 Ukrainians have provided information about the enemy in the temporarily occupied territories. And you can file for damage uh, payments, right? If your building is bombed by the Russians, you can just go on your app and say, my building is bombed, I'm putting in a claim for, you know, kind of reimbursement. Right, right. Today, this is the most relevant service for people whose real estate has been damaged or destroyed. They can use DIA to file such a claim and then the claim gets to a special register. Everything is checked automatically, i.e. very few bureaucrats participate in it. Everything is transparent, everything is documented, every action is logged electronically, and therefore the service is rather transparent. And the World Bank sees that, they see how all of it is built. And donors are helping us to rebuild the country because the process is quite convenient on the one hand, and very transparent on the other. So when the war began, you tweeted out saying, hey, if people want to contribute and donate to Ukraine, Here's how you can do it. And I think you, you opened a kind of crypto wallet-like thing with, and you created a, a portal called 24. Um, how many people have, how much money have you raised this way? 
Right. We have supported foundations engaged in raising money, and then, per Zelensky's instruction, we launched the United 24 platform. And then, through the platform, we raised about $500 million from all over the world. People would donate for drones, for boats. Here, for example, there is a boat for which people also donated money from all over the world. We were able to do it thanks to the United 24 platform. In fact, we took our digital expertise and made it convenient in order to get donations. With weekly reports, with involvement of stars from all over the world who use the platform, so this project became a large-scale one. What's the future? What, what's your, what are the next steps you dream about for the digital transformation of Ukraine? We want the GDP to grow in Ukraine. We want to have our own Google, Apple, and other big tech companies. To do that, we need to transform our educational system. We want to build the most convenient, comfortable country in the world in terms of government services. Thanks to Minister Fedorov and thanks to all of you for being a part of my program this week. I will see you next week. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.